Chapter 3 of The Planet Mappers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Planet Mappers by Edward Everett Evans. Chapter 3 At that horrid noise, the two boys stood frozen a moment, then, with one accord, raced to the control room where they peered out of the quartzite ports. "'Great whales! Look at that thing!' John shouted as they caught their first glimpse outside. "'Yow!' Jack yelled in amazement. "'What do you suppose it is? Never saw anything like it before!' They stared in awe at the tremendous creature standing in the little clearing, looking belligerently toward their ship. It was so unlike any earth beast, it was no wonder the boys were startled. The huge body was covered with heavily matted fur. It must have been at least a dozen feet long, and stood about eight feet tall. But the striking thing was that the body was triangular, and the beast was three-legged, two in the back and one in front. There was no tail, and the blocky legs, one at each corner of the weirdly triangular body, seemed to end in clawed feet. The head was shaped something like that of a horse, but the huge mouth, now partly open, was seen to contain great fangs larger than those of any beast the boys had ever seen in Terran zoos or in any planet they had visited. Two of the tusks were almost like the ones they had seen in pictures of ancient saber-toothed tigers. The whole get-up gave such an effect of fierceness that both boys felt a shiver run down their spines. Jack's voice was tremulous as he spoke. Yipe! I'm sure glad I'm not out there with that. John was slow in answering. Yet, if we're going out at all... He hesitated then continued. We'll either have to chase it away, or kill it. If we can, his brother retorted. I think our guns will handle it, John said. The question is, how are we going to do it without exposing ourselves? Jack thought swiftly. Maybe we could open the outer locked door a crack, just enough to see through and aim our guns. Yes, I guess that's it. Don't say anything to mother, Jack cautioned. Of course not, silly. Come on. Let's see if we can kill it. The two ran to the airlock and opened the inner door. Leaving it open, they examined their guns to make sure they were fully loaded. Then John punched the button to open the outer lock door. It was possible to do this while the inner one was still open, since there was now air outside to equalize the pressure. When the door had swung open a couple of feet, John stopped the motor and joined his brother who was peering through the opening. The huge creature was still facing them, about forty yards from the ship, one of its rear feet was now pawing at the ground, tearing up great hunks of sod, while it roared a mighty challenge time and again. I'll kneel and aim for the left eye. You stand over me and try to hit the other. Jack took swift command. Then try for the brain or heart, and keep pumping while our ammo lasts, or until we kill it. Right. John took his place and aimed his gun. Count three, and we'll fire together. Jack knelt and steadied his rifle with one elbow on his extended knee. One, two, three, fire! As the two shots crashed out, the creature sprang into the air a couple of feet. A great scream of pain and rage shook the very ground and made the air tremble. It hesitated only a moment, then charged towards the ship at tremendous speed. The boys pumped shots as fast as they could. Both had hit the head, but neither had put out an eye as they had hoped. They kept firing as fast as they could work their guns. Blood spouted from numerous wounds on the beast but still it came on madly, with swift, though lumbering bounds. Back quick, and shut the door, Jack yelled as his hammer clicked on an empty gun. 
He pushed backward and scrambled to his feet as John leaped to the door controls. The heavy door swung shut, and the boys breathed a sigh of relief. But almost at once their eyes filled with fear. They cringed back when they felt the ship itself shudder as that heavy body struck against it. As swiftly as their trembling legs would carry them, they raced back to the control room. They reached it just in time to see the huge tripod lunge against the side of the ship a second time, and again held their breaths as it did so once more. The beast's slow mind evidently realized, then, that it could not so easily overthrow this strange great thing that had appeared so mysteriously in its jungle clearing. It backed away some little distance, still roaring out in that horrible voice. Once again the beast bunched its mighty muscles for another attack, when it seemed to stop in the middle of a roar. It wobbled a bit. Slowly its mighty legs buckled, and it sprawled on the ground. A few spasmodic shudders, a convulsive shiver that ran through the tremendous frame, and then it was still. The boys let out their breaths. They were just beginning to congratulate themselves when the door of the control room opened, and their mother's frightened face appeared. What was that, boys? I was taking a nap, but your shooting woke me up. Then I felt the ship shake as though there was an earthquake or something. It was nothing, John began, but Jack went up to her and put his arm around her. It was just a big animal, mother. John and I killed it. An animal? Big enough to jar the ship that way? Where is it? she gasped. Jack pointed silently toward the port, and she hurried to look out. At sight of that huge mountain of flesh, she cried out, and her face became ever more white and strained. What a horrible beast! Are you sure it's dead? Sure enough. It wasn't hard to kill. Jack minimized the danger and made himself grin encouragingly. I'm going out and hack off some steaks. Bet they'll be good, too. You'll do no such thing, she cried, shocked. Now you boys listen to your mother. You're not to budge outside the ship. I want you to leave this awful world at once. The two boys looked at their mother, and suddenly they seemed to feel strength and maturity growing within them. As though the act had been discussed and rehearsed, they both came up and, taking their mother each by an arm, led her out of the control room and back to their living quarters. There they sat her down in her favorite reclined seat. Look, mother, you know how much we both love you and want to obey you always, Jack said earnestly. But we're in a peculiar situation here. On a strange planet, and pop out of commission, John broke in. I know John and I are still boys, Jack continued, but we're all the men here right now. I think you've got to begin trusting us to make the decisions. Jack's right, John chimed in. We're not going to take any fool chances, but I say we've got to go ahead and do things just as we think Pop would have if he was well and in command. As best we can, that is. Mrs. Carver looked from one son to the other doubtfully for a long minute, then smiled tremulously. I keep forgetting you're not my babies any longer, she said slowly. Mothers do that, you know. You're both almost grown men. I know you have good minds, almost mature minds. The various things you've been through have done that. So I release you from my apron strings. You two take charge and do whatever you feel necessary. They threw themselves on their knees, one on either side of her, their arms about her. Oh, mother, we didn't mean it like that. We've never felt you had us tied to your apron strings, Mom, John added. We still want to be your boys even though we do have to act like men, at least until Pop takes charge again. Her smile was now warm and tender, all hesitancy and most of the fears gone. 
Mr. C. and I have tried to make you self-reliant and resourceful, and he'll be as proud of you as I am. You're right. You are the men of the party and must do whatever you decide should be done. But be careful, she could not help adding. We will, mother. We think just as much of us as you do, John quipped. They left her sitting there then and went back to the control room. As they came close to the window ports, they peered through eagerly and were surprised to see the huge carcass of the triped, literally covered with strange-looking winged, featherless but fur-covered bird things. The latter had large, sharp beaks, with which they were tearing great gobs of flesh from the hulk, gulping them down with ravenous relish. Scavengers! John exclaimed, his eyes glued to the scene. Yes, there go our stakes. Jack's tone was so lugubrious that John looked up and laughed. I had hoped for some fresh meat. There'll be plenty later on, John consoled his brother. Probably this one would have been too tough anyway. Jack suddenly chuckled. Yes, like the fox said, the grapes were probably sour. They grinned companionably at each other, then turned back to watch through the port again. So numerous and so voracious were the scavenger birds, that within a few minutes they had even that mammoth carcass stripped of flesh, leaving only the huge bones. One by one, the birds then flew into the forest, the last ones fighting among themselves for the few remaining scraps of stringy flesh or entrails before they, too, took wing. "'Shall we try it now?' Jack asked after the last of the bird things had gone. "'Might as well.' We sure don't want to be cooped up here forever. They went back to the airlock again, making sure their guns were reloaded and their ammo belts filled. When both boys were in the lock, John punched the button that closed the inner door, then opened the outer one. Safer for Mom to have one of them shut, he exclaimed. The two stood there a moment, looking all about them. Except for that strange pile of huge bones, now covered thickly with some sort of reddish, chitinous-covered ant-like insects, the clearing seemed empty of all life except the peculiar flower-like grasses. John climbed down to the ground, and Jack followed closely. They walked a short distance away, then turned and looked back, scanning carefully in all directions to make sure no enemy was at their backs. "'Let's go over and study that jungle a bit,' Jack suggested when they were sure their rear was not, apparently, menaced. John had been looking at the remains of the beast. "'I'd like to try to salvage those tusks,' he said, and with Jack at his side went up to them. The two boys managed, after considerable work, to get the great fangs out of the jaws. They brushed off the clinging insects, then ran back and placed the tusks inside the lock. Thanks, Owl. Now we'll go take a look at your trees. Then I want to examine the tubes and the outside of the ship. But we'd better stick together, at least this first time. So I'll sort of cover you. Then, when you've had a look-see, we'll go back and you keep guard while I see what shape the boat's in. Right. Let's get going. Once past the seared place, they found that the peculiar, flower-tipped grasses were as stiff as wheat stubble. The grass blades were knife-sharp, but unable to penetrate the heavy, knee-high leather boots the boys wore. Jack stooped to examine and study them. The blossoms all seem to have three of these whitish petals, he said as he rose at last, and that whitish bulb in the center will be the seed pod. When they started on again, they found walking difficult until they learned the trick of scuffling along without trying to raise their feet above the tops of the grasses each step. Then it was easier, particularly since the gravity here was about five percent less than that of Terra, so they weighed less and their strength consequently seemed greater. The trees were closely clustered for the most part, and after studying them for some time, Jack said, They're a lot like some of the pines back home, though not too much like any I ever saw. Notice how there's no limbs until you get up thirty feet or so? John asked. They'd be hard to climb without spurs. 
Indeed, after anyone did reach the first low limbs, he would not be in much better shape for climbing, for the branches were ten to fifteen feet apart all the way up. Don't see any fruits, though maybe we're just not where any fruit trees are growing, Jack said after a bit. Yes, lots of woods back home don't have any fruit or nut trees in them. The strange grasses grew only in small occasional clusters inside the forest, but the ground was so deeply covered with fallen twigs, rotted branches, and the needle-like leaves of previous years, that walking was extremely difficult, almost impossible in places. There are probably trails somewhere. That triped would have made some sort of path. He sure was heavy enough, and if this was part of his regular stamping ground, he undoubtedly used the same route. Maybe, but not necessarily. He might have been attracted by our descent. Anyway, we can look for that later. Let's go back now so you can look over the ship while it's still light. We should be ready for a quick takeoff if we run into anything too hot to handle. John looked the surprise he felt. This sudden responsibility was making Jack more practical than he had ever been before, just the same as it was making him. After all, it was to be expected. John knew Jack had an excellent mind. The elder brother had just used it for what John had previously felt were unimportant things. Not mechanics, math, or such practical interests. But the way Jack had taken care of Pop, the way he had figured out how to feed him, and the right medicines to use on the bruise on his head, that must have injured Pop inside, and had known how to set his leg. It was a dang good thing, after all, that Jack had spent so much time studying those other subjects. Maybe mechanics and other sciences were not the main things in life, after all. Other things had their uses, too. Now the two went back to the ship and around to the stern. There, while Jack stayed on the ground on guard, watching in all directions in turn for any possible dangers, John surveyed the great driving tubes. He climbed the metal rung set into the ship for that purpose, so he could reach each of the tubes. With his glow-torch he studied the lining of each tube, crawling partially inside each one in turn. Finally he backed out of the last one and down to the ground. "'They're all in fine shape,' he reported happily to his brother. "'Can't find a single thin spot in any of them. That new alloy is really something.' Although the older brother did not know too much about such things, he felt a sudden relief at this report, for he felt that John did know, and he had real confidence in him. He had long realized the differences in their temperaments, and for several years had known his brother was almost a genius in the mechanical field. He remembered mentioning this matter to their father one time, and how his eyes had shone with pride as he answered, John's really remarkable. Some day, if he keeps on like this, he's going to be known all over the galaxy because of what he'll do in mechanics. Nor had Jack been jealous at this high praise of his younger brother. John's just a kid, he had said, and he's thoughtless rather than conceited, but sometimes he makes me so darned mad. His father laughed. Yes, like all kids. He hates the thought of letting anyone get ahead of him. That's particularly true of younger brothers. They feel, within themselves, that they are just as good or better than the older members of the family, and sometimes can't help showing it. Jack grinned. I'll bust him one yet some day, though, if he doesn't watch out. But he knew, and so did his father, that he never would, for both knew the real love that existed between the two brothers. Jack realized that his swiftly growing brother, now several inches taller and many pounds heavier than he, had a terrific mind. So, as now, he generally respected John's ideas, and shrugged away any momentary angers when John was particularly bossy. Jack followed as John walked slowly along the side of the ship, giving it a careful survey, especially toward the bottom, to see if anything on the lower surfaces appeared wrong. "'I'll climb up and give the top a going over tomorrow,' John said as they went ahead. The Star Rover was really a space yacht, 
It was 72 feet long and about 18 feet in diameter at its thickest part, which was about a third of the way back from the bow. The front of the ship was bluntly rounded and contained the control room with its thick quartzite window ports, and just outside that room the four bow-retarding tubes, which John also carefully examined when the boys reached them. Just after the control room were the living quarters. These consisted of the large, comfortable living room, the two small but compact bunk rooms, the bath toilet, the kitchen, and many ingeniously designed closet and drawer spaces for stowing personal belongings, clothing, and supplies. Beyond these were the storerooms for food, tools, and other supplies and equipment. The stern two-fifths of the ship was devoted to the storage of fuel and the various machines that drove the space yacht and kept it a self-contained world while in space. Here were the refrigerators and the heaters, the air and water purifiers, the generators of electricity for light and cooking and for their auxiliary motors, such as the ones controlling the airlock doors and pumps. In the lower part of the hull, under their living and control rooms and storerooms, were hydroponic tanks which not only grew vegetables and greens for their table, but which furnished oxygen to replace that unavoidably lost when the locks were opened. At the far end were the driving mechanisms. The latter were the latest developments in the atomic-powered field, and were surprisingly small for the tremendous work they did. Even John did not yet fully understand how they operated, though he knew how to run them. He did know they took specially treated copper, in the form of small nuggets, and utilized the tremendous force locked within their atoms as the propelling medium by which the ship operated. In some manner, these nuggets were vaporized inside the generators, into which they were automatically fed from the storage bins as needed, the power controls regulating the speed with which they were fed into the generators. This vaporized copper was run through some sort of a modified cyclotron-type mechanism, where the binding force of its atoms was liberated. That indescribable power then forced its vaporized particles out through the tubes, using the Newtonian law of action and reaction to propel the ship. Suddenly John turned to his brother. Hey, I just happened to think. We ought to rig up a siren or something, so Mom can call us if she needs us while we're away from the ship. Sounds like a swell idea. Can fix? Sure, nothing to it. We may even have one among the stores. If not, it's just a diaphragm inside a tube oscillated by electricity. I'll see if we've got one, or else make one and install it. As they neared the entrance to the ship, they saw their mother standing in the open lock, getting a breath of fresh air, and looking about the clearings with an interested expression. John had just opened his mouth to call to her when suddenly, without warning, without even a change in the light or feeling in the air, rain began coming down in great sheets. The boys, after only a momentary start of surprise, raced for the airlock. Their mother stayed to help them climb in. But by the time they were inside and the outer door was closed, they were wet through to the skin. "'Wow, that's sure some storm!' Wonder if it's a regular feature here. I wouldn't know, Jack panted. Did you get a look at that lightning, and hear the thunder? Didn't take time. I was too busy running. John laughed as he tried to wring the worst of the water out of his coveralls before going through the living room to the bunk room, where they would change to dry garments. When they came out, their mother, now also in dry clothes, met them with a smile. I think your father is getting better. He moved about quite a bit a while ago, though he didn't completely regain consciousness. Wonderful! That's super! Later, as the three were eating dinner, Jack suddenly laid down his fork in excitement. Just happened to think. We didn't see any cities here, so doesn't that make this a prime discovery? That it do! That it do! John said delightedly. Then that means we have the right to name and claim this system. Unless there are intelligent inhabitants on some of the other planets. Seems to me, if there were any, they'd be here. This is certain to be the most logical world to support life. What'll we call this system? 
Calvaria, of course, stupid, after Pop, John answered witheringly. That's very thoughtful of you, son. His mother smiled at him fondly. We'll call the sun Calvaria, then, and the three planets will be Tad, Marcy, Jack, John, and Rover. Ugh, how corny can you get, John sniffed. Since there are five, I know the fifth should be named for the ship, and we can't very well call it Star Rover. But certainly not just Rover, either. Why not leave off the last R and just call it Rove, their mother suggested. Swell, good, the two exclaimed at once. That means this one is named after you, Mom. How does it feel to have a whole world named after you? You ought to know, she retorted with a smile that brought out her dimples in the old way. You've each got one named for you. Then let's call this moon Diana, after the ancient goddess of the moon, Jack said. Look, Owl, this is Mom's planet. She has the right to name her own moon. John's voice was almost a sneer. I think Diana is a very nice name, and I'll accept that, although I'm going to make it Diane, his mother soothed. That has always been my favorite girl name. If I'd ever had a daughter, I would probably have named her Diane. So it will make it a doubly fine name for my moon. Haven't time to measure away it now, but I'll bet it's big enough and close enough to cause tides, John said meditatively. What's that got to do with the price of onions in Bermuda? Nothing, just thought it was interesting. Well, bed for me. Need a good rest tonight. Why especially, son? What do you plan for tomorrow? Just some more exploring, that's all. And we'll be careful, John added hastily as he saw the familiar words forming on her lips. Night, Mom. End of chapter 3 Recording by Todd